A thrill of hope, a weary world rejoices. This Christmas season, learn what the Bible says about why Christmas is important and why the coming of the Son of God means salvation for every man, woman, and child. Would you take your Bible this morning and turn to the book of Matthew in your Bibles today. Now, one of the ways that I believe, or one of the reasons I believe that the Bible is true is because it deals with things that no one would deal with if it weren't for an all-loving, all-knowing God in his loving character writing it. There's just things in the scripture that would not be written apart from the Lord's doing, who knows our needs, knows our thoughts, knows our actions, and knows what we need. And we certainly see that today. Today, we're going to look at verse number 19 through the end of the chapter, and we're going to do a, a very, what I would say is applicable study this morning on the life of Joseph the earthly father of Jesus Christ. Now, he was not the father. God was the father. Jesus had no father, if you will, but the earthly father of Christ is this young man, Joseph. Now, many of you know a little bit about Joseph as we give a little bit of background. You know that he was a carpenter. Now, when we think of carpentry here in the States, we often think of skill saws and hammers and nails and nail guns and things like that. But Joseph was most likely what we would call a, a brick mason or a mason that worked with rocks. You say, Pastor, why do you think that? Well, I've been to Nazareth. You can see pictures of Nazareth. And you understand that in Jesus' time and still to this day, as a general rule, the houses are primarily constructed of stone. And there's not a lot of trees there. And they would certainly have used some form of wood a little bit. But there were four in Christ's day. There were four major rock quarries in the city and around the city of Nazareth. And it, it seems historically and Many commentators believe this, and I would be one as well that would believe that Joseph was a man who uh, worked with stone. He was uh, a young man. He probably began his career in masonry at about the age of 10 years old in the Jewish culture. You would go to school. All young men went to school from the time they were about five to the time they were about seven, and then they would take a test, and those who were found to be proficient enough to advance would then advance and and then they would go to school till they were about 10 and you had to really be at the top tier of your class and if you advanced after 10 years old you had advanced to about 15 and then you'd go to what we might call like a college and you'd become things like maybe an attorney or something like that or, or maybe some type of, uh, of uh, accountant if you made it past the 10 year old mark and then if you made it you'd take a test at about 15 if you made it past that you would become a rabbi and so the most intellectual elite of their day were the rabbis and then you would have the guys that were accountants and attorneys and things like that 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 were good test takers and they would pass the test at 10 and then most of the young men they would make it to about 10 years old and then they would begin the family business they would begin learning the trade um, that would be passed down from grandfather to father to then son and then so on and so forth throughout the generations and so Joseph was probably and again there's a little bit of an here, but he was probably a brick mason that had been working this in this field since he was a, a very, very young man, if you will, a very, very young man. So he starts working in the field at 10. He's now, by the time we read this text, somewhere 
in the range of 20 to 25 years old. Well, at 20 to 25 years old, he began to wonder what most 20 to 25-year-old young men would wonder about, and that is, who am I going to marry? Seems like that's the common theme of many 20 to 25-year-olds. If it's not, I would encourage you to pray about who God would have you to marry and turn off the video games. Um, and uh, he would uh, he'd begin to wonder about that. And uh, the way that it would work in Joseph's day is that he and his parents would be very, very involved in the selection of a spouse. Um, they considered it in their culture far too important a decision to be left to the immaturity of a young person alone. And so the parents, it depends on the, the family, the parents would either have sole authority to select your spouse or they would have final authority to select your spouse. And so, and men should have said amen right there because that's the way, okay, I'll do it all on my own. Parents should have authority when it comes to the selection process of the spouse. That's how it was in Joseph's day. Now, if you're like, I don't know, I don't know if I really agree with that. Wait till you have daughters. All right, you're going to begin to look and go, I don't know if I like this guy or not. No, he's a loser. Get him out of here. You say, Pastor, you shouldn't call young men losers. Then don't be a loser. And I won't. I'm preaching on gentleness this morning. Um, I really am. That's funny. Um, by the time we pick up the story, Joseph and Mary were in what is called the betrothal phase of the marriage. Now, a marriage, again, I'm just giving you some historical context so that you understand what's going on. A marriage in Joseph's day consisted of three basic sections. You would have the engagement part, and again, that was the arranged by the parents and concurrence normally, but not always, in concurrence with the children. Uh, it was not uncommon in Christ's day for you to meet your spouse at the wedding altar, that you would have never seen one another before, you would have never known one another before, and you would meet one another at the altar. That would not have been uncommon. But in Joseph's day, Joseph's parents and Mary's parents were a little bit different, and they had met, they had uh, known one another, arrangements were made, and they were engaged uh, with parental oversight and guidance. That's what went on. I'm not preaching that that's the way it should be done. I'm just saying that's the way it was done in Joseph's day. And then once you were engaged, you would then move after a period of time determined by, again, the parents, those that were involved in the determining process. Then you would be in the betrothal phase. The betrothal phase was a formal, if you will, ratification of the marriage agreement. It lasted for a year, and it was during this betrothal phase that man, the, the, the young man and the young woman would get to know one another if they were going to go with that route, which is what Joseph and Mary did. And they were considered in the betrothal phase husband and wife. He had the responsibility to care for her needs. He had the responsibility to provide for her safety. He had the responsibilities of, of being a husband. And the relationship could only be dissolved by way of legal divorce. You couldn't just, just break up. It had to be dissolved. It was a legally binding agreement. The couple was not given the physical marital right. They could not have sex with each other. They could not live together. They could not touch one another. But 
yet he had the entire responsibility of caring for her for one year. Now, Joseph and Mary, as we read this text, are in the betrothal phase. The only way the marriage could be dissolved was through a legal divorce. The only way uh, that, uh, or, or they were not allowed to be together. And then they would have a ceremony, which was probably scheduled, where the entire city of Nazareth would most likely come. They would march through the streets. It'd be this in huge community event. And then Joseph and Mary would be married, consummate the marriage and live in Nazareth. And he'd be a brick mason and she would serve and minister to the family. And that would be their life. And that's what was planned. That's what was planned. Well, imagine with me for a minute that you're in the betrothal phase. You are legally bound to one another. You've never had sex. It's most likely you've never touched one another. Never, your hands have never caressed in church service when you're absolutely supposed to be in prayer. I know how it works. You've never done that. You've never done that, but you love one another deeply, deeply for sure. Well, Joseph and Mary are at this place. We have in verse number 18, the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise, when as his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. Now, God doesn't tell us everything that transpired here. And you say, well, why doesn't he? I, I don't know, but I believe it might be because we can work some of these things out in our own mind. And I'm going to tell you the way that it works out in my mind. The way that Mary told Joseph that she was pregnant. Imagine with me for a minute that you're in Nazareth. Now, the city of Nazareth overlooks, you've probably, you may have heard if you've been in church very long, it overlooks the Valley of Megiddo or what will be called in the Revelation, the Valley of Armageddon, where all the armies of the world will march on the nation of Israel. Jesus' uh, parents are from the city of Nazareth that overlooks that valley. And Jesus as a boy would have overlooked that valley all the time. Well, Joseph is there in Nazareth. And in my mind, it works out this way. He's had a long day at work and he's going by to see Mary and to talk to her and get to know her and spend some time with her. And Joseph and Mary are there and, and they're talking and Mary says, Joseph, can we take a walk? And Joseph is new to this. And so he doesn't understand yet that when your wife says, can we take a walk or your girlfriend, then normally that means news is coming that you probably don't want to hear. And so Joseph is more than excited to take a walk. And so they take a walk and they walk over to a hillside that overlooks the Valley of Megiddo. And they both sit down on rocks and they're talking. And Mary, with tears in her eyes, looks at Joseph and says, Joseph, I have something to tell you. And Joseph, and this is the way it works in my mind. Joseph is thinking, well, she can't divorce me. I don't know what it is. Maybe somebody is sick. Maybe somebody has a problem. I don't know. But Joseph looks at her and they're sitting on two rocks facing one another. And Joseph looks at Mary and he says, oh, it's okay, Mary. Tell, you can tell me anything. What is it? Mary stutters and stammers. Joseph, and she's weeping. I don't know how to tell you this. Well, what is it, Mary? Nothing could be this bad. Oh, Joseph, you, you can't imagine what this is like. Now, you've got to understand something. In Jesus' day, every woman, and, and, and in the biblical times, every woman wanted to be the mother of the Messiah. But it seems as though most people would have thought that the mother of the Messiah would have been somebody like Abraham's wife, Sarah, who was very, very old. That would have been the thought. But Mary 
is about to tell Joseph. And so Mary looks at Joseph and she looks at him and she says, Joseph, I've got to tell you, I'm pregnant. Now, that would be difficult in our world, but in that world, that was of the most extreme scandal of the day. Now, if I'm Joseph, or if I'm watching this, this is what I think Joseph's doing. He's like, come on, Mary, you got to be kidding me. What are you talking about? Stop it. Stop joking around. This isn't something you joke about. No, Joseph, I'm, I'm not joking. I'm telling you that I'm pregnant. And Joseph goes, who is it? Who did this to you? I'll kill him. Who is this guy? Now, he might not have said that, but I, maybe he thought that. And Mary goes, no, no, Joseph, you got to understand. It's not a man. That which is conceived in me, as the Bible says, is of the Holy Ghost. Wait a minute. You're telling me you're pregnant and the child that is inside of you is the product of the Holy Ghost? Yeah. Oh, Mary, come on. You could do better than that. Now, you got to understand something. Nobody had ever gotten pregnant by the Holy Ghost before. You can't go to the local Barnes and Noble and buy, you know, what to expect when you're expecting when you're impregnated by the Holy Ghost. It's just not in the store. There's nobody you can go talk to about this one. There's no friends to, to kind of figure out how to, how to plan all this out. I mean, Mary is, is just distraught. Joseph, I'm, I'm pregnant, and, and that which is conceived in me is of the Holy Ghost. Now, in my mind, I see it working out this way. I don't know how you'd see it. Fine, we all have a little bit of imagination we can work. I see Joseph just, just standing up in tears and maybe a little bit of frustration, maybe some righteous indignation and anger stands up. Mary, I've just got to be alone for a little while to figure this out. And Joseph goes for a walk. Well, where does he go? Well, in my mind, if you're from a small town and you're a guy, every guy in a small town has their place that they go to. Maybe it's a, a creek if you're from the Midwest where you went fishing, or maybe it's a certain spot on the beach here in California, and you just go to be alone. And Joseph goes, and he's alone. And notice what the scripture says in verse number 19. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man, and not willing to make her a public example was minded to put her away privately or privately. Joseph is there. Joseph is all alone. And Joseph is trying to figure some things out in his mind. And I want to be super candid with you this morning. As I study this passage of scripture, we see a wonderful character quality that I have not come close to mastering. Well, what is it? Gentleness. I grew up in the era of the ungentle. I mean, the heroes of our day were Rambo. Rambo. Some of you are like, who's Rambo? Well, he was Rocky Balboa, and then somehow he became Rambo. We're like within a year of one another. I don't know how it all worked. But Rambo. We, Charles Bronson. Chuck Norris. And on Saturday afternoons at 3 o'clock, Bruce Lee. Professional wrestling. You ever hear the professional wrestlers talk to each other? The trash talk, I'm going to rip your lips off and feed them to your mom's chihuahua. Like, no, you know, how dare you talk about my mom's chihuahua? And anything but gentle. 
Gentleness is really, if I could be candid with you, probably not an American quality. We are not known the world over as those gentle Americans. Now, I kind of like how we're known. Don't get me wrong. I'm not being dismissive of that. And I'm going to define gentleness. But I'm just going to tell you, I come from an era when gentleness is not good. When I was growing up, if you played basketball, I mean, it was not a gentle sport. There was no such thing growing up playing basketball as like, oh, a touch foul. No. I, I remember games, if you want to go back, you could YouTube it, where Robert Parrish, who was the center for the Boston Celtics, punched Bill Lambeer, who was the bizarre center for the Detroit Pistons, in the face, in the key, and Bill Lambeer is basically knocked out. They stop the game, Lambeer gets up, Robert Parrish gets a foul called on him, and they keep playing. Today, he would have been suspended for like nine years and been thrown in jail. That was our era. We're not a gentle people, by and large. Gentleness is not a highly regarded character quality in our lives. But Joseph was gentle. Matter of fact, if you were to study the subject of gentleness, you would probably first go to where the, the biggest or most well-known scripture for gentleness is. That's Galatians 5.22. The Bible says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness. And in, in Galatians 5.22, the word gentleness is a grace which pervades the entire nature. It's a mellowing of what would be harsh and austere, kindness. It's a mellowing of what would be harsh and austere. And it pervades the entire nature of the individual. When this word is used in the fruit of the Spirit... In this passage in Genesis, where the meaning is on the board, it has a richer than normal source. The experience and the effect of the love of God through Christ and the Holy Spirit shed abroad in our hearts works, works itself out in gentleness towards others. Gentleness is only effective if it's effective towards others. Throughout scripture, the word gentleness means mild, even-tempered, wisely keeping self-control over your passions and desires. Wisely keeping self-control over your passions and desires. Gentleness is a quality of God. The Bible says in Psalm 18.35, Thou hast given me the shield of thy salvation, and thy right hand hath upholden me, and thy gentleness hath made me great. Paul is talking to the church at Corinth in 2 Corinthians 10.1. He says, Now I, Paul, beseech you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. Proverbs 15.1 says a soft answer or a gentle answer is what the word soft means. A gentle answer turns away wrath, but grievous or harsh words stir up anger. Proverbs 25.15, by long forbearing is a prince persuaded and a soft tongue or a gentle tongue breaketh the bone. Gentleness. Now, I want to be very clear that gentleness does not mean weakness. And gentleness does not mean a lack of anger. 
The Christian ought to be angry at things. The Bible says, be ye angry and sin not. There are things that ought to tick believers off. The problem is we don't get mad at the right thing and we get mad at the wrong thing. We get mad at things we shouldn't get mad at, which I'm notorious for doing, and we don't get mad at the things that we ought to get mad at. Well, Pastor, what should we get mad at? Well, I don't know. I think there's a world of things that are in our world that are destructive that we ought to get mad at and mad about. And I don't mean just angry and yell at people, but anger that moves us to do something about it. I am angered at the growth of sex trafficking of children in our world and even in our city. That angers me on every level. Our city is one of the most greatly used sex trafficking cities in the entire western hemisphere, northern hemisphere. I mean, we, we have tremendous problems with that. Our state... There's things about the state of California that irritate me. And by the way, it's not the taxes that irritate me, though I have a problem with them. And it's not the housing prices that irritate me, though I have a problem with them. The problem is I don't like paying them. But I choose to live here. But there are things, there's a bill before, or not a bill, but an argument that is being adjudicated right now and deliberated by Supreme Court justices, the state of Louisiana versus a, a right-to-life clinic in Jackson, Mississippi, where there's a possibility that our state could stop the, or, or at least uh, track back some of the heinous acts of murdering innocent children in their mother's womb. We ought to be angry at abortion in our nation, but our, our ungodly governor has come out in the state of California. This is not political. This is a moral statement. He has come out in the state of California, and he has said that if you live in a state that in any way uh, ratchets back or, or refuses abortion, then the state of California will be a sanctuary state for you. We will fly you to our state. We will house you in our state. We will pay for you to have a free abortion. We will keep you here and then we will fly you home. And he's made that commitment to every single woman in the United States that California will be an abortion butcher shop for any woman, anywhere, anytime. That is ungodly, satanic, and from the pit of hell. And you ought to be ticked off at that. If you're not angry at that, I wonder what gets you angry. Your husband didn't show up five minutes on early. Your wife didn't cook the meal right. Really, you're angry at that, but you're not angry at the wholesale murder of innocent life. I mean, there are just some things, and our mayor is no better. You say, Pastor, I don't think you should talk bad about people. I'm not talking bad. I'm talking truth. And if the truth makes you mad, get mad at the right people, not me. I'm against it. But don't get mad at me for calling out what it is. That's, that, it's, it's unkind to not speak the truth. It might not be nice to speak the truth, but it's unkind to speak anything other than the truth. And the wholesale abortion of innocent children is a vile rebuke to our country, to our land, to Governor Newsom, and to our Mayor Todd Gloria. And by the way, I have a problem with it that 70% of abortion clinics in the state of California are in underprivileged minority neighborhoods. 
You don't see an abortion clinic across the street from where Todd Gloria lives. You don't see an abortion clinic across the street from the governor's mansion. We want to wash our hands of it, and we want to eradicate minority children who are created in the image of God. And that ought to tick you off. Why? Because we're all created in the image of God. But being ticked off at sin does not mean you're anything other than gentle. Now, I know in our world, you're like, wow, man, you seem really aggressive. Well, aggressive doesn't mean you're not gentle. You ought to be aggressive at the defense of innocent life. And so I want to be clear about that. I want to be clear that Christians the world over have been kind but firm in our belief. And my greatest fear is that when we talk about something like gentleness, people will go, well, I just can't stand for anything. Jesus called me to be gentle. No, no, I have to take a stand for what God takes a stand for. I don't need to take a stand what he hasn't taken a stand for, though I can, but I need to be gentle in my stance. And so we learned four things from the life of Joseph this morning in this interaction with Mary. The first thing we see is in verse number 19, and Joseph, her husband, being a just man, not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privately. He was a just man. I want you to notice this. Gentle people are disciplined people. Gentle people are disciplined people. The word just means he conditioned his life to walk with God. That's literally the word that is used. Conditioned his life to walk with God. He conditioned his life to God's standards not his own. He conditioned his life to God's standard, not his own. You've heard the phrase, if it's true to you, it's true. I I cannot, I'm not trying to be unkind here. I want to be gentle in my response to that. But that is not what a just person believes. A just person lives by a much higher standard than their own thoughts. They live by God's standard. Romans chapter 2, verse number 13, the Bible says, For not the hearers of the law are just before God, but the doers of the law are justified. Now, there's an important word in this definition that we see in the word just. Bring that definition back up. The, the word is the word conditioned. The word conditioned means it gets stronger over time. Let me illustrate it this way. We have a man in our church. He's in his 80s. He's had major heart surgery. His name's Jerry Hopkins. And he had had a heart surgery that was very precarious not too long ago. And he called me up and we were talking and he said, Pastor, I think I'm going to start walking. I'm good, good, good. He goes, I'm going to get better at this. I said, great. He said, my doctor told me to go as far as I can and then go back home. I said, that's awesome. Do that. That's what you need to do. So the first day he started walking, he walked 15 feet, and then he went back home. 15 feet, back home. He did that for about a week. 15 feet, back home. And then he started going about 20 feet and back home. And then he started going, he said, about 45 feet and back home. He told me last week, he said, now I'm walking three quarters of a mile and turning around and going home. He said, how do you feel about that? I'm all, that's pumps me up, man. He, he's, he's conditioned his life. He's getting better and better and better and better. This word just just means I'm getting closer to Christ and closer to Christ and closer to Christ and closer to Christ. I just keep growing and growing and maturing and maturing. And that's what Joseph was. He was a just man. He didn't start out perfect. He didn't start out great. He was 
just. He was conditioned. He conditioned his life to walk with God. It doesn't just happen. I work out with some great athletes. Because I'm big, they let me in the room. But they're athletes. I can just lift a lot of weight. They're athletes. And it's fun to watch them work out and to see the progress over time. How they've conditioned their life by day in and day out and day in and day out. Being in the gym, working out, or runners who run every day, or boxers who get into the ring, or whatever the case may be. Wrestlers who wrestle. What are they doing? They're conditioning their body. Matter of fact, it's an illustration the Apostle Paul uses about our life. That we continually fight. We continually get better. We continually try harder. We condition our life to do better to do more. That's what Joseph had done. He was a disciplined individual. Gentle people are disciplined. Joseph wouldn't allow himself to think outside of God's standard. When people would come to him and say things to him, he had had the practice of saying, no, 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 that's not what the the scripture would command me to do. I can't think that way. I can't think those thoughts I can't have those responses. I can't have that action. I have to condition myself to think a certain way. I would submit to you that this reality about a disciplined life, I would submit to you that disciplined people are controlled, or let me rephrase it, disciplined people control what they think about. They are not controlled by what they think. They control what they think about. They're not controlled by what they think. The psalmist said in Psalm 139, verse 23, it says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. God, search my heart. God, know my thoughts. And God, if there's anything wicked in my life, make it known to me and lead me in the way everlasting. This is not a prayer for salvation. This is a prayer for sanctification. This is a prayer for growth. This is a prayer for personal uh, maturity in Christ, for Christ-likeness. God, see if there's anything in my heart that is wrong and lead me in that way. That's the prayer of the disciplined believer. The prayer of the disciplined believer. Proverbs 13, verse number three says, he that keepeth his mouth keepeth his life. Joseph was a man who was disciplined. Gentle people are disciplined people. You're going to have to discipline yourself to be gentle. In a culture, in a country, in a world that is anything but gentle, where bravado and brashness and harshness and sarcasm and blowing up is expected, you're going to have to discipline yourself. And the idea that this is just how I was raised or this is just how I am is antithetical to Scripture. It's in opposition to the Word of God. And by the way, blowing up doesn't always mean yelling a lot. You can blow up silently. My wife grew up in a home. My parents are here today, so I have to speak lies. Let me just say this. I grew up in a home where um, you, you knew if people were mad at you. You just knew it. I grew up, my mom, I'd wake up, my mom was mad at me. I'd go to bed, she was mad at me. My whole life, my mom's been mad at me. Pray for her, she's here today. 
We're praying that she'll be nice. No, I'm kidding. I, but I grew up in a home where, where if, you, if something was needed to be said, it was said. It was said. My wife grew up in a home where if something needed to be said, it wasn't said. Even if it needed to be said, it wasn't said. And if there was a fight in the house, in our family, you knew it if there was a fight in the house. We, we didn't really hide that. But in my wife's family, the, the fights in the house happened mostly. And it was just the way that, that her parents were raised. And so it's the way she was raised. There was silence in the house. I can be super candid with you by saying this, that, that I know when Debbie's really upset, she's being very, very quiet. Matter of fact, the worst arguments we've had, she never said a word. What's wrong? you. I'm wrong? Yes. Gentleness doesn't mean silence and gentleness doesn't mean brashness. Gentle people are disciplined. Number two, gentle people, verse number 19, want what is best, not what is easiest. He was a just man, not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privately. Gentle people want what is best, not what is easiest. The easiest thing for Joseph would have been to denounce Mary as having been a, if you will, in that culture, trying to be gracious here, but a loose young woman. She would have had a mark over her life, the entirety of her life. And he would have just walked away. And he would have been sad, but not publicly humiliated for the rest of his life. But... You notice, he's a just man, and he was not willing. He was not going to make her a public example. But making her a public example would have been the easiest thing for him. Everybody would have said, Mary, horrible, Joseph, holy. That's what they would have said. Joseph would have walked around as a hero. She would have walked around as a villain for the rest of their lives. But Joseph didn't want to make her a public example. He was trying to figure out how he could if you will, divorce her and nobody find out about it. He, he didn't want to shame her. He didn't want there to be a cloud over her life, but he knew that he couldn't marry her. He was Galatians 5.22. He mellowed that which was harsh and austere. He was trying to do what was best, not what was easiest. Gentle people always want what's best. Always want what's best. They're not consumed with what's easiest. Gentle people will often have a a very confrontational conversation with folks, not yelling or screaming or bitter. They're they're controlled. They're conditioned. They're they're helping the person to live a just life. It's, It's not what's easiest. Easiest is often ignoring something. Easiest is often going a different direction. Easiest is often abandoning the difficult thing. But gentle people want what is best, not what is easiest. Can I tell you that getting irritated with family this Christmas is the easiest thing to do? Getting frustrated at your spouse this Christmas season, that's easy. Getting mad, that's easy. But it's not what's best. Joseph wanted the best for Mary. 
So he's trying to figure out how he could separate from her. He, he's trying to figure out how he could how he could extricate himself from the relationship without her being publicly shamed. Well, why would she be publicly shamed? Because the court was really outside the city gates of Nazareth, where the where the leaders of the city would would be seated, and Joseph would have to go to them, and he would have to express the the divorce and the reason for the divorce, and then she would be publicly shamed because there was no secrets that were going to be held in that small city. And so Joseph was was very, very careful, if you will, to, to try to figure out a way. And he's thinking about this and he's deliberating about this on how can I not shame her and still get out of the marriage. And then verse number 20. Well, he thought on these things. Now, back to our, my originally opening illustration. He has walked away from Mary. He's some distance away. She's gone back home in my mind, and he's sitting there thinking about these things while he thought on these things. Behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream. He's falling asleep, or the Lord made him sleep. We're not sure, but he's dreaming nonetheless, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. I want you to notice this, that gentle people are thoughtful people. While he thought on these things, while he pondered on these things, while he thought about these things, when Joseph hears of Mary's pregnancy, he doesn't fly off the handle. He doesn't blow up. He could have. In that culture, he could have physically harmed her. He could have abused her. Nobody would have said a word once they found out what happened. In many ways, her life was in his hands and and he's being very kind. He's trying to do the right thing and he's thinking deeply about these things. Gentle people are thoughtful people. You go, well, I'm not, I I just react. Well, then you're not gentle. And you're just not gentle. And you're called to be gentle. And I'm called to be gentle. Gentle people are thought-filled people. They're thoughtful people. He's deliberating. Now, Joseph could have blown up. Joseph could have walked away. Joseph could have said, I'm done with her. Understand this. God still would have taken care of Mary, and God still would have taken care of the baby Jesus. Make no mistake about it. But Joseph would have lost an opportunity to be greatly used of God. I wonder in my own life how many opportunities I've lost because of my lack of gentleness. How many opportunities I've lost to do things for God because of my lack of Christ-likeness. Because I blew up at the wrong time. Because I said the curt word to my wife or my daughters or my parents or our church staff or even somebody here that that I've, I've, I've said words that were anything other than gentle. They weren't just. They weren't kind. They weren't thoughtful. They were just reactionary words. Sometimes we live our life like the whole world's a freeway. We're in the fast lane and we honk at everybody to get them out of our way. Gentleness is a characteristic of the Lord. 
In 1 Kings chapter 19, verse number 11, Elijah, after having a major battle that goes on, he's sitting uh, there on the side of the mountain and he's asking to hear from God and God brings a fierce wind and, and Elijah looks and God's not in the wind and he listens and God's not in the wind and then a fearsome earthquake comes and God's not in the earthquake and then a blazing fire on Mount Sinai comes and, and, jo- and Elijah listens and there's, there's no word from the Lord and then in a still, small voice, what many people call a gentle whisper of God is where the Lord is found. Gentleness. Gentle people are thoughtful people. Gentleness is godliness. Godly people are gentle people. Godly people are gentle people. You see why I told you that you know God wrote the Bible? Because left to myself, I'm not preaching this. This is what gentle people are. And finally, in verse number 24, when Scripture says, Then Joseph, being raised from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord had bidden him, and took unto him his wife. Gentle people are surrendered people. They're surrendered people. Joseph is raised from sleep. God put a sleep on him. He's brought up in the sleep. And as soon as he wakes up, notice what the scripture says. He did as the angel of the Lord had bidden him or told him to do. He did exactly what the angel of the Lord told him to do. Can I be uber candid with you this morning that gentleness is not a product of your own making? You'll never last trying to be gentle. I mean, seriously, you could on your way home say, honey, we're going to stop and I'm petting every puppy that I see. I'm doing it. I'm not even, I'm not even going to make fun of cats anymore. I don't think the Lord cares, but I'm not even going to make fun of cats anymore. Whatever the case may be, I'm, I'm going to prove my gentleness. Well, the reality is if performed in human efforts, it's only a matter of time before you fail. And those human engineered qualities over a period of time will eventually fade. How do you get to the point where gentleness becomes a part of your character? Well, the Bible says it's the fruit of the Spirit. And it's by being surrendered over and over and over and over again to the Spirit of God. The reason that there's a a spirit of combativeness in our homes is not because the Spirit of God leads us to be combative. It's because we're not listening to the Spirit of God. The reason we argue and fuss and fight with our spouse, with our kids, with our parents, with our loved ones, with our coworkers, with the world that's at us, with the TV that's in front of us, is because we're not living by the Spirit of God. We're not surrendered to the Spirit of God. We're not conditioned to be gentle. We ought to be a gentle people. Our words are often far too harsh and far too frequent, and we're trying to be far too funny or hurtful or one-upsmanship or whatever the case may be. But I I just want to use Joseph as an example in my own life and in our lives collectively that if we'll do what God called us to do, God's going to do some great things in and through us. It's a fruit of the Spirit. Love and joy and peace and gentleness. There's no need to be harsh. But it's not really going to happen because we're like, that's it. I'm going to be gentle. Pastor said be gentle. Family, I'm never going to be anything but gentle. No, that's not true. How does it happen then? It happens as we yield to what God tells us to do. I can't tell you the number of times in my life that people probably even in this room but all over the place have said to me, I know what God wants me to do. I'm just not going to do it. Can I be super candid with you? That's a rebellious spirit. 
I know what God wants, but I'm not going to do what God wants. I'm going to do what I want to do. Then that means, and I'm not trying to be harsh here. I'm just trying to be honest and kind. That means that you're not yielded or submitted to the spirit of God in your life. And if you're not yielded to the spirit of God in your life, you can't be gentle. And truth be told, you're not loving and joyful or peaceful either. You might fake it, but you're not really gentle. And you say, well, pastor, I don't think I could submit to the spirit of God like that. Oh, by faith, you can. You don't have to fake it. I love what one preacher said this week that I heard. He said, you don't have to fake it, just faith it. By faith, believe that God will do the work that he's promised to do. By faith. God, I know you're trying to make me a gentle person. I know that you're trying to help me to be like Joseph. And I see his example of gentleness in your word. Spirit of God, would you work in me and and, and see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting and make me a much more gentle person. You pray that prayer, I can promise you this, God's going to give you plenty of opportunities to grow in gentleness. I was telling Debbie last night, we were going to a function last night and... We weren't late, but we were close to it. And so we were driving, and, and there was a car in front of us going like 12 miles an hour. And, I, man, I'm telling you, by the spirit of Chris, I waited as long as I could. And I'm telling Debbie, literally, we're driving down the road, and I'm telling her what I'm preaching on this morning. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm preaching on gentleness. And I told her, like, some of the points, and we're talking. And I'm telling her, I'm like, oh, gentleness, you know, I mean, we got to grow in that. Would you hurry up? And I da, 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 come on. And then the third time, I think the third time, you're out. I start honking. And Debbie goes, I think they don't know where they're going. I said, I think they're in my way. And, and she reaches over in Christ-like annoyance. And she touches me. She goes, I'm glad God's working with you on gentleness. To which I looked at her and I was like, shut up. (laughs) She said, well, last week you preached on patience and it seems like you've got a long way to go. I said, I'm going to preach on silence here and you're going to be stuck. And so we had a good laugh about it. But I'm just being honest with you. God's going to give you a chance to grow. And by the way, we are too. We're not going to be too harsh on you. We're going to let you grow. But the question is, you got to grow by way of submission. Not everybody who looks at the life of Jesus sees him as a great character and a great victor. We look at Jesus and we hear this story and on Christmas Eve we'll look at Luke chapter 2 when Jesus was born. I believe that's the text that we'll be in. And, and we as the believer are just, just pumped by the reality of who Jesus is. And all that. But not everybody thinks that way about Christ. Niccolo Machiavelli was a Renaissance philosopher, politician and writer. His writing greatly informed and is often still used in today's world of political science instruction, university level and beyond, graduate school and the like. Machiavellian believed that to be effective, political leaders needed to be ruthless, tyrannical, not emphatic and just. In his book, The Prince, it's a short manual of advice from four, rather, princes on how not to finish last. And the answer was never to be overly, how do I not finish last? Don't ever be overly devoted to acting nicely. And know how to borrow every single trick employed by the most dastardly, unscrupulous, nastiest people who have ever achieved anything. 
Machiavelli knew that our counterproductive, he, were his words, obsession with acting nicely originated from the West and, and was brought up on the Christian story of Jesus of Nazareth, who Machiavelli said was a very nice man from Galilee who always treated people well. But he went on to point out the inconvenient detail uh, to people that, that the triumph of goodness through meekness didn't happen. From a practical perspective, Machiavelli argued that Jesus' life was an outright disaster. He said the gentle soul was trampled upon and humiliated and disregarded and mocked. And he was judged in his lifetime and outside of any divine assistance. He was one, said Machiavelli of Jesus, that Jesus was one of history's greatest losers. Well, I have some news for Machiavelli. And for anybody in the crowd who thinks that. That Jesus Christ did not come to the world to take over the world. He did not come to be a world leader or a national leader or even a political leader. The text that we read today says in verse number 21 that she shall bring forth a son and thou shalt call his name Jesus. And here's why he came to save his people from their sins. Jesus came that we might have life and life more abundantly. Jesus said, my yoke is easy. My burden is light. Machiavelli and his followers and people like him don't want to make the yoke of those that follow them and serve them easy. They want to make the yoke of those that serve them and follow them hard and harsh and austere. Jesus is the exact opposite. Jesus didn't find victory as being the leader of the world. Jesus defined victory as dying for the sin of mankind. Matter of fact, the Bible says this through the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 when Jesus was on the cross and he died for the sin of all mankind. It says this, so when this corruption will put on incorruption, talking about our body, and this mortal will put on immortality, or when we die and we spend eternity either in heaven or hell, and right here he's speaking about heaven, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, this is said of, of, of Christ, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is thy sting. O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin. The strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Gentleness might not make me a world leader, but gentleness is following the example of Jesus Christ. And if you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, can I tell you, there's only one way that you'll ever have victory, and that's by trusting in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Christianity is not a political persuasion. It's not a cultural persuasion. It's an eternal persuasion that only Jesus Christ can save your and my soul from an eternity in hell. Only Jesus Christ can give us life and life more abundantly. And there is no way under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved saved apart from Christ. If you don't know Christ today, would you trust him today as your savior? Right where you're seated, you could pray, pray a prayer of repentance. God, I'm sorry that I have offended you. I'm sorry that I have sinned against you. I know that I have no worth to bring, but the best I know how, I trust you and you alone as my savior. And I ask you to redeem me.
If you'll pray that prayer today, right where you're seated, the Bible says you can know without a doubt that heaven's your home. You can know without a doubt that Christ is your king. You can have eternal life because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And Christian, are you gentle? Would your life be marked as gentle? Would your kids vote you gentle? Not the most gentle. Would your kids say you're gentle? Would your spouse say you're gentle? Well, this is just how I am. Right, die to the way you am. Die to the way that you are and take on the character and nature of Jesus Christ. Thank you for listening. Hear more messages anytime at CanyonRidgeBaptist.com. If you're in the San Diego area, please join us for a service. We meet on Sundays at 8.30 a.m., 10.30 a.m., and 5 o'clock p.m. We look forward to seeing you.